0: Well, today we're going to start our new series for the next five weeks in First Peter. First uh, Peter um, is a wonderful book. I hope you'll take this opportunity to read it, maybe for the first time, maybe for the fiftieth time. But each week, uh, with what we, Carl and I, will be preaching through this, we'd love to see people coming who have read the chapter, so next week the homework is chapter 2, but today we're gonna look at chapter 1, which is the first has the first verse of this amazing letter that contains 105 verses. It's a brief letter but it's full of resurrection power. It's written by the Apostle Peter. You remember the young fisherman in Galilee full of boldness, you might even say an impulsive guy. He's now, at the, near the end of his life, writing this letter from a prison cell in the city of Rome. His youthful pride has been worn away. He's now a measured man, less impulsive. Time and discipleship have forged humility within him without destroying his holy boldness. The Holy Spirit has transformed his character, and Peter is now the overseer, sometimes we call it a bishop, for the whole church. This mature Peter helps us today see Jesus more clearly, Jesus the Savior, the Lamb, the overseer, the one who sacrifices his life for our sins, and our chief shepherd. As you read through this book, you'll be refreshed with hope and filled with holy joy. If you're struggling with temptation, Peter will help you stay the course in holy living. Maybe you're suffering for something you did or didn't do. You'll find perspective and assurance. Peter is going to give us a clear vision of the church, wisdom for human relationships, instruction on spiritual gifts, clarity on how to engage with secular governments, encouragement to witness with gentleness, and teaching for the elders of the church. Here are some of the big themes of 1 Peter. Appreciating our salvation rather than taking it for granted. Learning obedience and submission even when it's tough. Practicing holiness without developing a sanctimonious streak. Living in the world without becoming of the world. Emulating Christ's sacrificial lifestyle so it becomes our own. Growing through our sufferings rather than being defeated by them. Being faithful in our relationships with family, employers, and employees. Grasping our true identity as God's people preparing for God's judgment without fear, and developing the character of leaders who are Christ-like shepherds. Those themes and more, Peter will help us understand through this letter. It's an intensely practical book that teaches us how to grow as Christians, how to change into a more Christ-like character in both our behavior and our attitudes. Peter reminds these early Christians that they are elect exiles in the world and in their pilgrimage calls them to focus on three key relationships with God who elected them chose them from before the foundation of the world with the world that they live in in all of its brokenness and with the brothers and sisters who are their fellow pilgrims. So let's look at an outline of chapter one together. First, he gives us an introduction and greeting. Then he gives us his one sentence, 12, no, nine verses on salvation. A living hope and our inheritance being kept for us. And third, he shifts to exhortation, to live out of our identity as chosen, saved people, and to become resident aliens in this world, to be holy as God is holy, and to love each other deeply. Well, let's read together these first 12 verses as we begin. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance." that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come to you, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently Even angels long to look into these things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Apostle Peter and for this mature reflection on what it means to follow Jesus Christ as his disciple, what it means to experience his salvation, his joy in abundance, and the inheritance that is being kept for us in heaven. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us through his life and his words as we enter into this book. And we thank you for the privilege and the joy of being chosen by you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back to verses 1 and 2. So these early Christians have been begun to experience widespread persecution for their faith. It's a persecution that had been sporadic in the Roman Empire, but in the early 60s AD, Peter and Paul are both arrested and put in prison and accused of sedition, of revolution against the Roman Empire. The persecution intensified when Emperor Nero uh, needed a scapegoat for the fires that went through the city of Rome. So he blamed the Christians. And soon orders went out into all the provinces to not allow freedom to worship. And the vice of persecution began to, to grip those early Christians. Let's look at the map of the people where they lived that, that Peter's writing to. It's Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It's Cappadocia. It's Galatia. It's Pontus. It's Bithynia. These are, there are churches in each of these provinces scattered probably in houses, Christians afraid to go to work sometimes because they knew they'd be persecuted. It began with simple things like if you can't join in in the guild of tailors or the guild of blacksmiths and worship the Roman gods after work, then you won't get advanced in your career. And then it became if you don't participate in these rituals, we're going to throw you in prison. And eventually, Christians were beginning to be put to death for their faith. So those are the people that, Paul, that Peter is writing to. And Peter knows that his life is nearing an end because of what's happening in his own life in Rome, in prison. So he wants to put his most important teaching, a lifetime of following Jesus, of being the leader of the early church, he wants to summarize his preaching and teaching for this early church. Now, like Paul, Peter has his own ministry team. He's got people with him who help him in his ministry. He credits Sylvanius, who is also probably the same person as Silas. And Silas and Peter were a great team. Remember, Peter grew up uh, speaking Aramaic. He was a fisherman, he was not educated. He was educated for three years in the seminary with Jesus Christ, which went for a lot. But Greek was his second language, so he needed to write this letter in the language that people could understand as their first language. So it's likely that he, he and Silas together in prison wrote the letter, Peter dictating, sharing his reflections on Jesus, and Silas putting it into the form that we read today. And then Silas was the likely carrier of the letter as he went to each of these churches and read the letter from those pulpits. Imagine the privilege of sitting with the Apostle Peter, working from a jail cell in Rome, as Peter urgently conveys the gospel that Jesus had taught him, as he reflects on his life of following Jesus. Now Peter uses two words to describe these early followers of Jesus. First is the word elect. It's a transliteration of the Greek word eklektos. It means being selected chosen. And Peter is emphasizing the fact that God chose and selected each and every follower of Jesus, each believer. When I became a Christian during my fall semester of my freshman year in college, my roommate shared the good news of Jesus with me. He was, the, you know, so bold. You know, he had must have just gone to an evangelism seminar. And anyway, he shared it and at first I thought, this is really strange and it's kind of weird and can I get another roommate? But that was because I was following my own way. And before I could get to the good news of salvation that he wanted to share with me so badly, I had to come to grips with the bad news of my sin. I had to come to grips with the emptiness of my life All of my goals were goals not to find meaning and purpose, but to get a good degree, make a lot of money. Typical American teenage college student in the 1970s. But then I began to read the Gospels, and I met Jesus Christ. He came alive to me. Now, as I look back on my decision to follow Jesus Christ on Christmas Day, 1975, I now understand that the only way I could even have gotten to that point of deciding to follow Jesus was that Christ had chosen me from before the foundation of the world. He had softened my heart through the Holy Spirit. He had led me to see my sin and the enormity of the decisions that I was making that were destroying my life. And he led me to repent. You see, we are first chosen, then we decide to follow. We are elect. It's such an, a wonderful word, because it means that we've been chosen and that nothing can take that away. We are secure in God's holy election. The second word that Peter uses to describe the early Christians are, is exiles or strangers. And it, exile is another... I love this Greek word, peripodemos. It means, it says, pertaining to staying for a while in a strange or foreign place, sojourning, residing temporarily. Now, we don't usually think of ourselves as residing temporarily in any one place, but that is our identity as Christians. I love this word, resident alien. We live here, but we're always strangers, aliens. In the New Testament, this word is used here in chapter 1 and then in chapter 2 of 1 Peter and also Hebrews 13, 32. See, Peter is warning us not to get too settled, too comfortable in this world. We're first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. And when he's writing to these early Christians, he's reminding them that the kingdom of God has total priority over the Roman Empire and that whatever the Roman Empire throws at them does not remove their security as citizens of the kingdom. That was such an important concept for these early Christians because to be a citizen of Rome brought all sorts of benefits and those rights were being stripped from those early Christians. So Peter says you are resident aliens. You are citizens of another kingdom and not of this world. Today, it relativizes every single commitment that we have to the nation state that we live in. Peter says we are strangers, sojourners, pilgrims on a journey. Well, after his opening greeting in verses one and two, Peter gives a summary of the good news of God's salvation in verses three through 12. It's one sentence in which The word salvation appears four times. So it's important. If a word appears four times in a short period of time in the Bible, take it seriously. It's the most important thing we can understand, salvation. And he says four things about salvation. First, it's a Trinitarian salvation. He says it's accomplished by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Second, it's a future salvation that we will experience in its entirety, and its fullness, only when Christ returns. Third, it's a salvation that brings inexpressible and glorious joy, even in the midst of our suffering, our trials, and our struggles. And fourth, it's a promise of salvation into which the prophets and even angels long to look. Here's Isaiah 12, 2. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord Himself, is my strength and my defense, and He has become my salvation. Peter experienced that, and now he wants these early Christians to understand the fullness of the salvation that Jesus brings through His death his resurrection, his ascension, and by sending the Holy Spirit into the life of each one of these dear Christians. Now, Eugene Peterson gives us a, a, a wonderful um, translation in the message of this. Here he goes. This is the same section, verse starting with verse 3. What a God we have, and how fortunate we are to have him, this father of our master Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. The day is coming when you'll have it all healed and whole. I know how great this makes you feel even though you have to put up with every kind of aggravation in the meantime. Salvation is the foundation of Christian behavior. Don't try to do the Christian life until you have reached deeply into your understanding, mind, heart, and soul, of your salvation, of God's Spirit living in you. That is the only way you can live the Christian life. Now, he shifts Peter right away after this long sentence about salvation into the implications for our daily life of being saved. We are not saved just for ourselves, just for the joy that we experience. We're saved in order to live as Christ's hands and feet in the world. So, uh, Peter is saying live understanding who you are, an elect exile saved by Jesus Christ. Start living it, do it, Peter says. This illustration helped me understand this. A Christian was talking to a soap manufacturer about his faith, and the soap manufacturer was a crusty old guy, and he said, well, I don't think much of your Christianity. It's been around all these years, and look at the mess the human race is in. They were traveling along the road, and they saw two or three children playing in the mud on the side of the road. And the Christian, with a twinkle in his eye, said, well, what about your soap? It's been around longer than Christianity, and look at the mess those kids are in. Ah, said the soap manufacturer, my soap is only effective when it's applied. And the Christian said, that's exactly how it is with the Christian faith. Peter understands this truth, so he shifts from preaching the good news of salvation and spends the rest of chapter 1 and on into chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, exhorting these Christians to apply what they've learned to their daily lives. Salvation leads us to live completely differently. Let's look at this word exhortation and what it means. An exhortation is a discourse or speech That encourages someone to do something. It incites us to live according to the truth that we've heard. So Peter spends nine verses on theology of salvation, and then the rest of chapter one, right into chapter two, is a long exhortation to live it, to do it. Let's look at how Eugene Peterson translates part of this exhortation. So roll up your sleeves. Get your head in the game. Be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better than You do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing, with holiness. God said, I am holy, you be holy. Now that you've cleaned up your lives by following the truth, love one another as if your lives depended on it. Peter's vision of being holy as God is holy has implications for how we love one another. Now that we've cleaned up our lives by following truth, now that we've been saved, Love one another as if your very life depended on it. Let me give you an example of a person, a Christian who learned this on the job. I talked to the kids about it. Her name is Lacey Lanier. Lacey grew up in a faith tradition that labeled certain types of careers as more Christian than others. In her church, occupations fell into a tier system with ministry work at the top. You can't save the body without saving the soul was a saving she learned from childhood. She internalized and interpreted this to mean that nursing was not crucial kingdom work because it only attended to the body. Desiring to integrate her faith and career, she longed for meaningful work that furthered God's ongoing redemption and restoration in the world. After many months working in the understaffed unit, Lacey hit a breaking point. Even with her deep passion for nursing, the health of her body, mind, and spirit were rapidly declining, and she knew it was time to make a career change. But what? Driven by her desire to do meaningful work for God's kingdom, Lacey decided to pursue being a full-time missionary. She knew she needed more training and education, before heading to the mission field, and that led her to Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Fuller was supposed to be a fresh start, and it was, just not in the way she anticipated. While making small talk with a classmate on the first day of orientation, she explained how she used to be a nurse, and the classmate immediately responded, a nurse, that is so needed in missions. This simple statement planted a seed in Lacey's heart that would grow into a more expansive theology of mission. At Fuller, Lacey came to understand that the gospel is concerned with holistic restoration and redemption for God's people. That's what the kingdom of God, that's Peter's vision of salvation. So she began deconstructing her old missiology that centered only on saving the soul. Throughout her studies, she developed a new theology of mission that affirmed bodily and emotional care as equally important to spiritual health. She came to realize how nursing was deeply important to God's ongoing restorative work in the world. Looking back, she says, it's hard to even imagine not seeing nursing as missional. Lacey realized that in nursing, caring for the body, mind, and spirit could be beautifully married together. In fact, they cannot be separated. While completing her degree, she embarked on a year-long process of applying to be a NICU nurse at Children's Hospital, Los Angeles. Lacey had only been back in the nursing field for about a year when COVID hit Los Angeles. Her conviction about the importance of holistic care had already fundamentally changed the way she viewed tending to newborns in the NICU And this only deepened during the pandemic. I am taking care of this baby, giving them an antibiotic that will stop the sepsis that would potentially kill them. But also I am rocking them to sleep and caring for them in an emotional capacity. Both are important. Especially in the midst of restricted visitation, Lacey found that even the most ordinary acts like giving babies a bath gave her a deep sense of connection When I am holding them, snuggling them, giving them a bath, that is where my heart for nursing shows in the caring. I love the science too, but I need to have that heart connection. Opening up her heart to the babies makes bearing witness to their struggle all the more devastating. Yet she feels more certain than ever of her calling to be a NICU nurse. And amidst all the pain, Lacey explains, there are also moments of tremendous joy. One day while clocking in, I heard my name being called from down the hall. I looked up and saw the parents of a baby I had been caring for. They were taking their child home for the very first time after months in NICU. Through quality of care, advocacy of the parents, and the collaboration of the healthcare care team, this baby came through. Going from a place of not knowing whether the baby was going to make it to being in a place where you connect with the parents so deeply that they yell at you from down the hall. I hold on to these moments. As a NICU nurse, Lacey lives in the both and reality of our world, sorrow and joy, suffering and hope. It's a delicate balancing act that requires her to hold on to hope while remaining cognizant of her patient's very real health challenges. With all the ways NICU nursing challenges her faith, she maintains her conviction to holistic care for infants. For Lacey, connecting with the babies, knowing the reality of potential heartbreak is what it means for her work to be missional. I would not have these moments in any other profession. There is so much depth in the world of the NICU, depth of sorrow, and depth of joy. Lacey, there's more to her story, but Lacey is in a place where she can not only care for these children and their families, but she can bear witness to the faith that sustains her in this very challenging field. Later in 1 Peter, he will talk about always being ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us, and Lacey is able to do that in such a powerful way, in a way that a full-time missionary could never do. She's on the front lines of the mission field in both her care of the body, the emotions, and of the soul. That's what Peter's talking about, living out our faith every day in our neighborhoods, our vocations, our families, our community. Lacey is a disciple of Jesus Christ. In Peter's teaching, we're gonna learn more this in the next several weeks about what it means to be resident aliens, about living our lives as elect exiles in a world that sometimes feels like it's careening out of control. Now you can't do that if you don't know your salvation if you don't know your eternal destiny, if you don't understand that the inheritance that you have is completely secure, when you have that knowledge, you can give your life away. Peter urges us to remember our salvation, to rejoice in it, to be filled with hope. Friends, we are chosen by the God who created us, but the salvation that we have been given as a free gift cost Jesus everything. So we are saved in order to live a life of holiness, of imitating Jesus, of reflecting his love to one another and to the world around us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the Apostle Peter for the way you transformed him from a young fisherman, full of impulsive behavior. He fell, he betrayed you, and you restored him, and gave him a life of purpose and meaning, of hope and joy. You saved him utterly, and Lord, you are saving us, and one day our salvation will be complete when we see you face to face. We look forward to that day, but for now, Lord, help us to live as saved people, as chosen people, sure of our future, so that we can give our lives away now. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.